If you want a deeper relationship with God, then learn to trust His promises. The Promise Code by O.S. Hawkins will help you understand how to count on God's promises. And it's yours with a gift of any amount to Turning Point this month. When you give $60 or more, you'll receive the Promise Code set, which includes Esther's CD album, study guide, historical chart, and Bible promises at a glance booklet. Learn more and donate when you go to davidjeremiah.ca. According to the old saying, if something is worth living for, it's worth dying for. Are you living for a principle so meaningful you defend it with your life? Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah sets the stage for such a moment in Esther's life as she faces the king's wrath for protecting her people. From the series, Esther, for such a time as this, here's David with his message, If I Perish, I Perish. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We're studying the book of Esther, and I am hopeful that you've been with us up until uh, this broadcast. And uh, the subtitle of the series is For Such a Time as This, and today we kind of get into the core of that subtitle. Here is a woman who is being asked to do something that could cost her her life. She's being asked to go and stand before a king, and if she makes one wrong move, it'll be all over. But she believes in her God, she believes in his people, and she stands courageously, and here are her words, if I perish, I perish. I don't know that I have ever been in a situation like that. I'm pretty sure most of us have not. But what an encouragement it is to see the confidence this woman has in the God that she serves. And we'll get started with part one of this lesson in just a moment. If you're following along in the Bible, these are the first 17 verses of the fourth chapter of Esther. As we come to this Friday edition of Turning Point, I want to just take a moment and tell you that Turning Point is now on television almost everywhere in the United States, either through independent stations in local communities or on the major networks that bring television to you through cable. If you're not watching Turning Point's television program, I hope you will seek it out this week. If you're having trouble finding it in your area, you can go to our website where there is a station finder, plug in your zip code, and that particular program will tell you what stations will reach you in your community. Turning Point television is totally different than what we do on the radio, and it is always uh, additional material to help you in your growth. And then, of course, we'll be back here on Monday as we continue uh, our study on the book of Esther. In the month of April, we're going to be in Boise, Idaho at the Extra Mile Arena for one of our rallies, our first time ever in that community. And we're so excited to invite you to come from all around the area. Fly in if you want to and come and join us for a night of celebration in a beautiful place called Boise, Idaho. Well, it's time for us to get going with this lesson. So here on this Friday edition of Turning Point is part one of If I Perish, I Perish. The book of Esther, as you know, is put together in such a way that we see various threads of the story beginning in the very earliest verses. In order for us to follow the train of thought, we have to think carefully all the way through. We have to wonder at the beginning of this book how Esther ever became a part of the Persian government. But once again, we know God was sovereignly behind all of that. 
And God made it all happen. He allowed it to happen in such a way that Vashti, who was the queen, was deposed because of insubordination. And a beauty contest was run, and Vashti was replaced by the beautiful Jewess Esther. And we wonder where Haman came from, and how did he get involved in this story, and why would God allow such a Jew-hater to be a part of any of the record of the Word of God? And yet, just as surely as Esther was in God's plan, Haman was provided for in the plan of God. And God is not surprised by the Hamans of our lives. God knows all about it. He has allowed it within his sovereign will. As the story unfolds, as you remember, Mordecai has just been notified that a decree has gone out that all of the Jews in the Persian Empire are to be exterminated. Haman has made sure that the decree has been published in every language throughout all of the provinces of Persia. And the result is now that every Jew and Jewish family in the Persian Empire is in fear for their life. As we begin the fourth chapter, the first three verses tell us the story of a nation in distress. Roman numeral one, if you keep your outline, is the distress of a nation. And we read in the first three verses of the fourth chapter, When Mordecai perceived all that was done, Mordecai rent his clothes and put on sackcloth with ashes and went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry and came even before the king's gate, for none might enter into the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews, and fasting, and weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and in ashes. The news of the edict to destroy all the Jews caused Mordecai to go into deep mourning. He went about the streets of Susa, the palace city, and he was wailing out loud. His garments were torn. The Hebrew and Persian alike understood that Mordecai was expressing great grief and discouragement. The Bible says he put on sackcloth. That's not a term known to many of us, but it is a term which we can understand from studying the Scripture. It was a cloth made from the hair of goats and sometimes from the hair of camels. Usually, according to Revelation chapter 6 and verse 12, it was black. It was very uncomfortable to wear next to the skin. And oftentimes in mourning or in weeping or in expressing grief, the Jewish people especially would wear that very uncomfortable cloth next to their skin as an irritation to remind them of their sorrow. They would take this goat's hair sackcloth, and if they didn't wear it next to their skin, they would put it down over their clothes. And it was a sign to everybody that saw them that they were in deep mourning, oftentimes because of the death of a loved one or because of some expected national calamity. And Mordecai was expressing strong feeling about what was going on in that nation. And the second verse tells us that he came even before the king's gate, which was a daring move on his part. For none could enter into the king's gate clothed with sackcloth, but he came as close as he could. After parading his grief around in the city, Mordecai went to the city square, and there he marched in front of the king's gate. 
All that he felt in his heart was being expressed outwardly in his body, in his person. And the third verse of the fourth chapter tells us that in each and every province, wherever the king's commandment and his decree had been published, there was great mourning among the Jews and fasting and weeping and wailing. And many of the Jews, like Mordecai, lay in sackcloth and ashes to express their sorrow. To the very far reaches of the empire, Jews mourned and fasted. It's an interesting thing as you study the book of Esther that so far in every chapter we have studied, there has been at least one feast. The sixth month and seventh day feasts of Ahasuerus, Xerxes, followed by the feast of Vashti, the feast celebrating Esther's elevation to queen, the feast of Ahasuerus and Haman after sending out the terrible decree, and in every succeeding chapter, feasting is going to hold a prominent place. But in this chapter, there is no feasting, there is only fasting. Because in this chapter, there is great sorrow throughout the land. The decree has been put together, and it was the decree from Xerxes, and it was the law of the Medes and Persians, which could not be reversed. Every one of the Jews who got a writing of this decree or heard it read publicly knew that this same Xerxes had deposed his first wife Vashti and later had reconsidered wishing he could bring her back but it was too late because it was the law of the Medes and Persians and once the king signed the decree it could never be undone. This was the sentence of death for every one of the Jews and they knew it. Well, in verse 4 of the fourth chapter, we move from the distress of the nation to the disgrace of a queen. We're told in the fourth verse, So Esther's maids and her chamberlains came and told it to Esther. And then was the queen exceedingly grieved, and she sent raiment to clothe Mordecai and to take away his sackcloth from him, but he received it not. Now, there are a number of ways we can understand this verse, and some folks have understood it to mean that Esther was trying to get Mordecai cleaned up so that he could come into the palace and make his presentation before the king. But the probability is she was not doing that at all. I think Esther was embarrassed. I think she was duly embarrassed. This was her father, her garden, if you will. And here was the word that her father, Mordecai, was walking around in the streets he was walking up and down, moaning and wailing and groaning. So what does she do? She decides to get him some clothes and sent a suitcase out to him. And she said, take these clothes and put them on because I'm embarrassed to have you running around out here like this. And I have a feeling that the clothes were a little better than sackcloth. I have a feeling they were nice threads, the kind of threads you'd get if you work inside the king's house. She was embarrassed by Mordecai's mourning. The Bible says in the fourth verse that when these clothes were delivered to Mordecai, he refused them. He said, I don't want them. I'm not going to take them. I'm going to enjoy my sorrow. I'm going to stay out here in the streets and represent the sorrow of the people. He was not going to remove the stigma that he was wearing around because of what had happened. He was not about to accept any gaudy clothes from his daughter, the queen. When the clothes came back to her, when they were sent back and they had not been appropriated by Mordecai, she knew something very serious was going on. It was 
Mordecai's own way of sending a message back to the queen that this was not just a moment of sorrow or a day of mourning, but this was a national calamity. And so in verses 5 through 8, we have the direction of this patriot. And notice what happened. Then called Esther for Hattash, one of the king's chamberlains, whom he had appointed to attend upon her, and gave him a commandment to Mordecai to know what it was and why it was. So Hattash went forth to Mordecai into the street of the city, which was before the king's gate. And Mordecai told him of all that had happened unto him, and of the sum of the money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the Jews to destroy them. Also he gave him the copy of the writing of the decree that was given at Shushan to destroy them, to show it unto Esther and to declare it unto her, and to charge her that she should go in unto the king to make supplication unto him and to make request before him for her people. Now Esther couldn't go outside of the gate herself, and Mordecai, because of the way he was dressed, couldn't come inside of the gate. So somehow they had to communicate, and a messenger was chosen. Obviously, Esther selected somebody that she could trust. Some have felt it may have been one of the eunuchs of the kingdom. And this messenger was supposed to go and convey the word faithfully without adding to it or taking from it. And Mordecai evidently possessed some of the same kind of pipelines into the palace and knew some of the secrets of the palace. And so as these two got together, they began to communicate and Mordecai felt like the best way he could convey the seriousness of this event back to Esther was if he could send her a written copy of the edict which had gone out through all the land saying that every Jew had to be destroyed. So we're told in the text that Mordecai gave a copy of that edict to Hattish, and Hattish took it back and gave it to Esther. And now with her own eyes, she reads the death sentence that has been passed, not just upon the Jews in the kingdom, but upon her as well, for she herself was a Jew. And now, having noticed the distress of the nation and the disgrace of the queen and the direction of this patriot, this patriot now having sent this message to the queen, we notice the dilemma of the law. Notice verses 9 through 11. And Haddish came and told Esther the words of Mordecai. And again Esther spake unto Haddish and gave him commandment unto Mordecai. And this is what she sent back to him by this go-between, this messenger boy. She said, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces do know that whatsoever, whether man or woman, shall come into the king, into the inner court, who is not called, there is one law of his to put him to death, except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter, that he may live. But I have not been called to come in unto the king these thirty days. And they told to Mordecai Esther's words. Now watch what's happening here. Esther respectfully sent back a message. And the message was that she could not go into the king as Mordecai had asked her to do. She could not go in and present herself to the king and make a plea to the king for the safety of the Jewish people. Because there was a law that had been passed and it was an understanding in the kingdom and even though Mordecai's direction had been a very good one, and he had asked in good faith for Esther to go in and present herself to the king and beg the king 
to rescind this law that would exterminate the Jews. She said, I can't go, and here's the reason why. And she spelled it out. In fact, if you read verse 11, I've taken a little pen in my Bible, and I've underlined the word king. It's in there, all all the king's servants and the king's province shall come unto the king, except to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter, be called to come in before the king these 30 days. The problem Esther saw was she couldn't get past the king. The king was the one who was in the way. And there was this law that said, if you walked into the presence of the king when you weren't invited, it was instant death. I mean, it was history for you. And the only way you could get in before the king is if an audience was provided for you, unless you should just boldly go in before the king and he should extend the golden scepter to you, which meant that you were welcome. But nobody wanted to take that risk because it was either instant acceptance or instant death. And that was kind of a risky option for Esther. And I can't go in and plead the case of the Jews before the king because I haven't even been with him in 30 days. And of course, the way this worked is the king had many women, and he sort of chose them according to his fancy. And apparently, Esther was kind of not in with the king during these days. He was being entertained by some other ladies, and she was down in the palace away from the king and hadn't been in his presence in over a month. And now Mordecai wanted her to walk into the presence of the king and plead the case of the Jews. And she responded back, you know, this, I can't do this. If I walk in before the king, I am risking my own death. In other words, she sort of said back to Mordecai, that's too bad, I'm sorry to hear about your plight. I didn't know about it before, but I have not been called into the king's presence now for 30 days, and I do not know what his attitude toward me is, and I'm not about to find out. And so she kind of passed off the responsibility that Mordecai tried to place on her. Now go back in your Bibles in the fourth chapter and notice that what Mordecai had asked her to do, he had asked her to make request before the king for her people. Look at the end of verse 8. He said, Esther, you need to go in before the king and make supplication to him and make request before him for your people. And she responded, because of the law, I can't do it. Because if I go in, I am going to be a certain candidate for execution. Well, I'm sure that Esther thought that was the end of the story, that she had communicated her heart and that she would be out of the hot seat. But now we come in verses 12 through 14 to the very heart of the story and the definition of sovereignty. Now, I want you to notice what happened. And they told to Mordecai Esther's words, and verse 13, Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. Do you want a paraphrase of that? Esther, don't you think you're going to get free because if this decree is executed, it will be found out that you are a Jewess and you're going to die along with the rest of the Jews. And then verse 14, For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Throughout history, people have asked themselves and asked of others, Why am I in this mess? I'm sure that Esther must have wondered why she was in the fix she was in. 
Here she was in this dilemma. She had all of the friends that she loved, all her Jewish people, under sentence of death. She's been asked to go and plead before the king. She doesn't want to do it because she's afraid it will mean her life. And she's caught in the middle. She communicates it back to Mordecai. Mordecai sends a message back to her. And in that message, he says, Esther, you really have but three options. Let me spell them out for you. Option number one, you can be destroyed. That's the first part of the verse. You need to understand that just because you're the queen doesn't mean you are not going to be executed. Because when they find out that you're a Jew, because this is the law of the Medes and the Persians, you must be destroyed along with the rest. Number two, she might be passed over. There's an interesting thing here in this verse. He says, listen, Esther, you could be the answer, but let me just tell you something. You aren't the only possibility. I love this phrase in the middle of verse 14. He said, there could be enlargement or help or deliverance for the Jews from some other place. You may not be the only answer. You could be the answer, but you might not be the only answer. And I wish Mordecai were here today because I'd like to ask him what he was thinking about. I'd like to know what other options he was thinking about. I mean, at this particular point in time, understanding the story, Esther looks like their only hope. And from the human perspective, she was. But Obviously, Mordecai was a man of faith, and though he didn't see any other human option, he may have thought God has another way to come through in behalf of his people. Option number one, Esther, is you can be destroyed. Option number two, God may just pass over you and use somebody else. Or option number three, you may have been born for such a time as this. Maybe God has placed you right in the center of this situation so that you can be God's person even though it is very uncomfortable. So Esther now has to think this over. Notice verse 15, the decision of a lifetime. Then Esther bade them return to Mordecai this answer. Go gather all the Jews that are present in Shushan and fast ye for me and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise And so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. Now, the first definition of sovereignty is you're born for such a time as this. But the response to sovereignty is to say, if that's true, I'm going to do what God wants me to do. And if I perish, I perish. I'm not sure how much of what Esther said in that last phrase was of a spiritual decision or if she had sorted out the options and figured out that in 11 months she was going to die anyway, so she might as well take the risk and at least have the possibility of escaping death if God indeed was in this whole thing. But whatever she meant by what she said, her words have come down to us with great power. There are actually books that have as their title, If I Perish, I Perish. A reminder to us that our survival isn't the only important issue, that the important issue is that we cooperate with God Almighty and that we be available to Him so that He can use us wherever he has placed us in the situations that we face. And the Bible says that Mordecai went his way after he heard this, 
and did according to all that Esther commanded him. Well, you know, sometimes it's awkward to stop in the middle of a story, and especially when we have to wait for the whole weekend. So whatever you do, don't miss on Monday when we will bring this particular part of the story to some sort of a conclusion. A lot of Esther left for us to study. I hope you'll be with us for the rest of the month. If you haven't already done so, uh, I'd like to encourage you to send a gift to Turning Point during this month. And to encourage you to do that, I would like to add some value to your life with a book by O.S. Hawkins that will be a blessing to you. It's a very beautiful gift book that has been built around what he calls the Promise Code, 40 Bible Promises Every Believer Should Claim. In the O.S. Hawkins style, it's very readable, full of illustrations and promises and scriptures. Every day that you read this, you will be blessed in your heart. And it's our privilege to make it available to you when you send a gift of any size to Turning Point during this month. Simply ask for the book, and it'll be on its way. Well, thank you so much for being with us during this week. We have covered a lot of territory in the beginning of this series, and uh, we will continue to do that as we move forward studying this wonderful Old Testament book. Turning Point is about Bible study. Turning Point is about the power of the Word of God to change one's life. Esther is a life-changing story, and we're so grateful that you're allowing your life to be exposed to the truth of Esther. We'll see you on Monday. Have a great weekend. For more information on Dr. Jeremiah's series, Esther, for such a time as this, please visit our website. There you'll also find two free ways to help you stay connected, our monthly magazine, Turning Points, and our daily email devotional. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. Or call us at 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of the latest book from leader and author O.S. Hawkins, The Promise Code. 40 Bible promises every believer should claim. It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also purchase the Jeremiah Study Bible in the English Standard, New International, and New King James versions, available in a variety of attractive cover options. Get all the details when you visit our website, davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us Monday as we continue Esther for such a time as this on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. For more than 40 years, Dr. David Jeremiah has faithfully preached God's Word. And as the world changes, how the message is delivered expands. Turning Point Plus was created as the next step in our digital broadcast ministry. And it's available instantly when you sign up to support Turning Point with an automatic monthly gift of any amount. Learn more and access more than 12,000 audio and video messages at turningpointplus.org. If you're looking to enhance your personal or group Bible study, look no further than the Jeremiah Bible Study Series. In each volume, Dr. David Jeremiah helps you understand what the Bible says and how to apply it. Along the way, you will gain insights into the text, identify key themes, and be challenged to apply the truth found in Scripture to your life. Get your copy today. Learn more at davidjeremiah.ca slash study. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash study. The American novelist Pearl Buck was the daughter of missionaries to China and winner of both the Pulitzer and Nobel Prizes for her novels. She wrote this about relationships. 
The person who tries to live alone will not succeed. His heart withers if it does not answer another heart. His mind shrinks away if he hears only the echoes of his own thoughts and finds no other inspiration. Her words remind me of God's words in the Garden of Eden. It is not good that man should be alone. Relationships mean bonding spiritually and emotionally with others, especially in marriage, but outside marriage as well. This is David Jeremiah, encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's heart for relationships on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com. Start your journey home today.